Chapter 2. The Mending Apparatus Buy a vestibule, buy a lift, buy a tubular railway, buy a platform, buy a sliding door. By reversing all of the steps of her own departure, did Vashti arrive in her son's room, which exactly resembled her own. She might well declare that the visit was superfluous. The buttons, the knobs, the reading desk and the book, the temperature, the atmosphere, the illumination, all exactly the same. And if Kuno himself, flesh of her flesh, stood close behind her at last, what profit was there in that? She was too well bred to shake him by the hand. Averting her eyes, she spoke as follows. Here I am. I've been on the most terrible journey and greatly retarded development of my soul. It is not worth it, Kuno. It is not worth it. My tomb is too precious. The sunlight almost touched me, and I've met the rudest people. I can stop only for a few minutes. Say what you want to say, and then I must return. I've been threatened with homelessness, said Kuno. She looked at him now. I've been threatened with homelessness, and I could not tell you such a thing through the machine. Homelessness means death. The victim is exposed to the air, which kills him. I've been outside since I spoke to you last. A tremendous things happened, and they discovered me. But why shouldn't you go outside, she explained. It's perfectly legal, perfectly mechanical to visit the surface of the earth. I've been lately to a lecture on the sea. There's no objection to that. One simply summons a respirator and gets an aggression permit. It is not the kind of thing that spiritually minded people do. And I beg you not to do it. But there's no legal objection to it. I did not get an aggression permit. Then how did you get out? I found out a way of my own. The phrase conveys no meaning to her, and she had to repeat it. A way of your own, she whispered. But that would be wrong. Why? The question shocked her beyond measure. You're beginning to worship the machine, he said coolly. You think it irreligious of me to have found a way out on my own. It was just what the committee thought when they threatened me with homelessness. At this, she grew angry. I worship nothing, she cried. I'm most advanced. I don't think you are religious, for there's no such thing as religion left. All the fear and superstition that existed once before has been destroyed by the machine. I only meant to find a way of your out was... Besides, there's new, no new way out. So it was always supposed, except for the moratories, of which one must have an aggression permit. It's impossible to get out. The book says so. Well, the book's wrong, for I have been out on my feet. Wakuno was possessed of a certain physical strength. By these days, it was demerit to be muscular. Each infant was examined at birth, and all who promised undue strength were destroyed. Humanitarians may protest, but it would have been no true kindness to let an athlete live. He would ever have been happy in that state of life to which the machine had called him. He would have yearned for trees to climb, rivers to bathe in, Meadows and hills against which he could might measure his body. Men must be adapted to his surroundings, must he not? In the dawn of the world, our weakly must be exposed on Mount Tigeus. In its twilight, our strong will suffer euthanasia. That the machine may progress. That the machine may progress. That the machine may progress eternally. You know that we have not lost the sense of space. They say space is annihilated, but we have annihilated not space but the sense thereof. We lost a part of ourselves. I'm determined to recover it. And I began by walking up and down the platforms of the railway outside my room, up and down, until I was tired. And so did we capture the meaning of near and far. 
Now is the place which I can get to quickly on my my feet, not a place to which the train or the airship will take me quickly. Far is a place to which I cannot get quickly on my feet. The dormitory is far, though I could be there in 38 seconds upon summoning the train. Man is the measure. That was my first lesson. Men's feet are the measure for distance. His hands are the measure for ownership. His body is the measure for all that is lovable and desirable and strong. Then I went further. It was then I called to you for the first time, and you would not come. This city, as you know, was built deep beneath the surface of the earth, with only the vomitories protruding. Having placed the platform outside my own room, I took the lift to the next platform, but paced it also, and with each in turn, until I came to the topmost, above which begins the earth. All the platforms were exactly alike, and all that I gained by visiting them was develop a sense of space and my muscles. I think I should have been content with this. It is not a little thing, but as I walk and brooded, it occurred to me that our cities had been built in the days when men still breathed the outer air, and there had been ventilation shafts for the workmen. I could think of nothing but these ventilation shafts. Had they been destroyed by all the food tubes and medicine tubes and music tubes that the machine has evolved lately? Or did trace of them remain? One thing was certain. If I came upon them anywhere, it would be in the railway tunnels in the topmost story. Everywhere else, all the space was accounted for. I'm telling the story quickly, but I don't think I was a coward, or your answers never depressed me. It was not the proper thing. It is not mechanical. It is not decent to walk along a railway tunnel. I did not fear that I might tread upon a live rail and be killed. I feared something much more intangible, doing what was not contemplated by the machine. Then I said to myself, man is the measure, and I went. And after many visits, I found an opening. The tunnels, of course, were lighted. Everything is light. Artificial light, darkness is the exception. So when I saw a black gap in the tiles, I knew that it was an exception, and I rejoiced. I put in my arm, I could put in no more at first, and waved around and round in ecstasy. I loosed another tile, put in my head, and shouted into the darkness, I'm coming, I shall do it! And my voice reverberated down endless passages. I seemed to hear the spirits of those dead workmen returned each evening to the starlight and to their wives, and all the generations who live in the open air called back to me, You will do it yet. You are coming. He paused, and absurd as it was, His last words moved her. For Kuno had lately asked to be a father, and his request had been refused by the committee. His was not a type that machine desired to hand on. Then a train passed. It brushed by me, but I thrust my head and my arms into the hole. I was none enough for one day, so I crawled back into the platform, went down in the lift, and summoned my bed. Ah, what dreams! And again I called you. And again you refused. She shook her head and said, Don't. Don't talk of these terrible things. You make me miserable. You're throwing civilization away. But I had got back the sense of space. And a man cannot rest then. I determined to get into that hole and climb the shaft. So I exercised my arms. Day after day I went through ridiculous movements until my flesh ached. I could hang by my arms and I could hold the pillow of my bed outstretched for many minutes. Then I summoned a respirator and started. It was easy at first. The mortar had somewhat rotted, and soon pushed more became tiles in, and I clambered after them into the darkness, and the spirits of the dead comforted me. 
I don't know what I meant by that. I just say what I felt. I felt for the first time that a protest had been lodged against corruption. That even as the dead were comforting me, so was comforting the unborn. I felt that humanity existed, and it had existed without clothes. How could I possibly explain this? It was naked. Humanity seemed naked. All these tubes and buttons and machineries they came in, neither came into the world with us, nor will they follow us out, nor will they matter supremely while we're here. Had I been strong, I would have torn off every garment I had and gone out into the outer air unswaddled. But this is not for me, nor perhaps for my generation. I climb with my respirator, my hygienic clothes, and my diabetic tabloids. Better thus than not at all. There was a ladder, made of some primeval metal. The light from the railway fell upon its lowest rungs, and I saw that it led straight upwards out of the rubble at the bottom of the shaft. Perhaps our ancestors ran up and down it a dozen times daily in their building. As I climbed, the rough edges saw cut through my gloves, such that my hands bled. The light helped me for a little, and then darkness came, and worse still, silence, which pierced my ears like a sword. The machine hums. Did you know that? Its hum penetrates our blood. It may even guide our thoughts. Who knows? I was getting beyond its power. Then I thought, the silence means I'm doing wrong. But I heard voices in the silence, and again they strengthened me. He laughed. <laughs> I had need of them. The next moment, I cracked my head against something. She sighed. <laughs> I had reached one of those pneumatic stoppers, the defenders from the outer air. You may have noticed them in the airship. Pitch dark my feet on the rungs of an invisible, invisible ladder, my hands cut. I cannot explain how I lived through this part, but the voices still comforted me, and I felt for fastenings. The stopper, I suppose, was about eight feet across. I passed my hand over it as far as I could reach. It was perfectly smooth. I felt it almost to the center, not quite to the center, for my arm was too short. Then the voice said, jump, it's worth it. There may be a handle in the center, and you may catch hold of it, and so come down to us on your own way. And if there is no handle, so you may fall and dash too, still worth it. You will still come to us in your own way. So I jumped. There was a handle and... He paused. Tears gathered in his mother's eyes. She knew that it was fated. If he did not die today, he would die tomorrow. For there was not room for such a person in the world. And with her pity, disgust mingled. She was ashamed of having bored such a son. She would have always been so respectable and so full of ideas. Was he really the little boy she had taught to use all the stops and buttons, and to whom she had given the first lessons in the book? The very hair that disfigured his lips showed that he was reverting to some savage type. On atavism, the machine can have no mercy. There was a handle, and I did catch it. I hung tranced over the darkness and heard the hums of these workings, as the last whisper in a dying dream. All the things I'd cared about and all the people I'd spoken to through tubes appeared infinitely little. Meanwhile, the handle revolved. My weight had set something in motion and spanned slowly, and then I... I cannot describe it. I was lying with my face to the sunshine. Blood poured from my nose and ears, and I heard tremendous roaring. The stopper, with me clinging to it, had simply been blown out of the earth and the air we make down there was escaping through the vent into the air above. It burst up like a fountain. I crawled back to it, for the upper air hurts, and, as it were, I took great sips from the edge. 
My respirator had flown goodness knows where, my clothes were torn. I just lay with my lips close to the hole and I sipped until the bleeding stopped. Can you imagine something so curious? The hollow in the grass, I'll speak of it in a minute, the sun shining on it, not brilliantly, but through marbled clouds. The peace, the nonchalance, the sense of space, and brushing my cheek, the roaring fountain of our artificial air. Soon I spied my respirator, bobbing up and down in the current high above my head. And higher still were many airships, but no one ever looks out of airships. In any case, they could not pick me up. There I was, stranded. The sun shone a little down the shaft and revealed the topmost rung of the ladder, but it was hopeless trying to reach it. Either should have been tossed up again by the escape, or would have fallen in and died. I could only lay on the grass, sipping and sipping, and from time to time glancing around me. I knew I was in Wessex, for I had taken care to go to a lecture on the subject before starting. Wessex lives above the room we're talking about now. It was once an important state. Its kings had all of the southern coast from Andreswald to Cornwall, while Wandsdyke was protected them from the north, running over the high ground. The lecture was only concerned with the rise of Wessex, so I do not know how long it remained an in international power, nor will the knowledge have assisted me. Tell the truth, I could do nothing but laugh during this part. There I was, with a pneumatic stopper by my side, and a respirator bobbing above my head, imprisoned by all three of us in a grass-grown hollow that was edged with fern. Then he grew grave again. Lucky for me that I was in a hollow, for the air began to fall back into the earth and to fill it up as water fills a burl. I could crawl about. Presently I stood. I breathed a mixture in which the air that hurts predominated wherever I tried to climb the sides. This was not so bad. I had not lost my tabloids, and remain ridiculously cheerful. And as from the machine, I forgot about it altogether. My one aim was now to get to the top, where the ferns were, and to view whatever object lay beyond. I rushed the slope. The new air was still too bitter for me, and I came rolling back after a momentary vision of something gray. The sun grew very feeble, and I remembered he was in Scorpio. I've been on to lecture that too. If the sun is in Scorpio and you're in Wessex, it means you must be as quick as you can or it will get dark. This is the first bit of useful information that I've ever got from a lecture. I expect it will be the last. It made me try frantically to breathe the new air and to advance as far as I dared out of my pond. The hollow, the hollow filled so slowly. At times, I thought that the fountain played with less vigor. My respirator seemed to dance nearer the earth. The roar was decreasing. We broke off. I don't think this is interesting you. The rest will interest you even less. There are no ideas in it, and I wish that I had not troubled you to come. We are too different, mother. She told him to continue. It was evening before I climbed the bank. The sun had very nearly slipped out of the sky by this time, and I could not get a good view. You, who have crossed the roof of the world, will not want to hear an account of the little holes I saw, blue-coloured sills, but to me they were living, and the turf that covered them was a skin under which their muscles rippled. I felt that those hills had called the incalculable force to men of the past, and that men had loved them. Now they sleep, perhaps forever. They commune with humanity in dreams. Happy the man, happy the woman, who awakes in the hills of Wessex. For though they sleep, they will never die. His voice rose passionately. 
cannot you see? Cannot all the lecturers see that we are dying and that down here, the only thing that really lives is the machine. We created the machine to do our will, but we cannot make it do our will now. It has robbed us of the sense of space and the sense of touch. It has blurred every human relation and narrowed down love to a carnal act. It has paralyzed our bodies and our wills. It now compels us to worship it. The machine develops, but not on our lines. The machine proceeds, but not to our goal. We only exist as the blood corpse calls that course through its arteries. And if it could work without us, it would let us die. Or oh, have no remedy, or at least only one, to mail men again and again that have been seen the hells of Wessex as Alfred saw them when he overthrew the Danes. So the sunset. I forgot to mention that a belt of mist lay between my hill and the other hill, and it was a cover of pearl. He broke off for a second time. Go on, his mother wearily. She shook his head. Go on. Nothing you can say now can distress me. I'm hardened. I had meant to tell you the rest, but I cannot. I know I cannot. Goodbye. Vashti stood irresolute. All her nerves were tingling with his blasphemies. But she was also inquisitive. This is unfair, she complained. You've called me across the world to hear your story, and I will hear it. I will. Tell me as briefly as possible, for this is a disastrous waste of time. Tell me how you returned to civilization. Oh, that, he said, starting. You'd like to hear about civilization? Certainly. Had I got to where my respirator fell down? No. But I understand everything now. You put on your respirator, managed to walk along the surface of the earth to a vomitory, and there your conduct was reported to the Central Committee. By no means. He passed his hand over his forehead, as if dispelling some strong impression. There, resuming his narrative, he warmed to it again. My respirator fell about sunset. I had mentioned that the fountain seemed feebler, had I not? Yes. About sunset, it let the respirator fall. As I said, I had not entirely forgotten about the machine, and had paid it no great attention at the time, being uh, occupied by other things. I had my pool of air into which I could dip when the outer neenus became intolerable, and to which I could possibly remain for days, provided that no wings sprang up to displace it. But until it was too late did I realise what the stoppage of the escape implied. You see, the gap in the tunnel had been mended. The mending apparatus, the mending apparatus was after me. One other warning I had, but I neglected it. The sky at night was clearer than it had been at day, and the moon, which had been about half the sky behind the sun, shone into the dell at moments quite brightly. It was my usual place on the boundary between the two atmospheres. When I thought I saw something dark move across the bottom of the dell and vanish into the shaft. In my folly, I ran down. I bent over and listened, and I thought I heard the faint scraping noise in the depths. At this, but it was too late, I took alarm. I determined to put on my respirator and to walk right into the dell. But my respirator had gone. I knew exactly where it had fallen, between the stopper and the aperture. I could even feel the mark that it had made on the turf, but it had gone, and I realised that something evil was at work, and I had better escape to the other air, and if I must die, die running towards the cloud that had been in the colour of pearl. I never started. Out of the shaft, it is too horrible. A worm, a long white worm, had crawled out of the shaft, and it was gliding over the moonlit grass. I screamed. 
I did everything I should not have done. I stamped upon the creature instead of flying from it, and at once curved around my ankle. Then we fought. The worm let me run all over the dell, but it edged up my leg as I ran. Help! I cried. That part is too awful. It belongs to the part you'll never know. Help! I cried. Why can we not suffer in silence? Help! I cried. When my feet were round together, I fell. I was dragged away from the deer ferns in the living hills and past the great metal stopper. I can tell you this part. And I thought it might save me again if I caught onto the handle. But it also was in a wraps. It also. Oh, the whole dell was full of these things. They were searching in all directions. They were denuding it. And the white snouts of the others peeped out of the hole, ready if needed. Everything they could be moved, they brought. Brushwood, bundles of fern, everything. And down we went, all intertwined into hell. The last things I saw, ere the stopper closed after us, were certain stars. And I felt that a man of my sort lived in the sky. For I did fight. I fought to the very end. And it was only my head hitting against the ladder that quieted me. I woke up in this room. The worms had vanished. I was surrounded by artificial air, artificial light, artificial peace. And my friends were calling to me down speaking tombs to know whether I'd come across any new ideas lately. Here his story ended. Discussion of this was impossible. And Vashti turned to go. It will end in homelessness, she said quietly. I wish it would, retorted Kuno. The machine has been most merciful. I prefer the mercy of God. By that superstitious phrase, do you mean that you could live in the outer air? Yes. Have you ever seen round the vomitories the bones of those were extruded after the Great Rebellion? Yes. They were left where they perished for our edification. A few crawled away, but they perished too. Who can doubt it? So with the homelessness of our own day. The surface of the earth supports life no longer, indeed. Ferns in a little grass may survive, but all higher forms have perished. Has any airship detected them? No. Has any lecturer dealt with them? No. Then why this obstinacy? Because I've seen them, he exploded. Seen what? I've seen her in the twilight. Because she came to my help when I called. Because she too was entangled in the worms and, luckier than I, was killed by one of them piercing her throat. He was mad. Vashti departed. Nor, in the troubles that followed, did she ever see his face again.